nuclear energy maybe seems a little bit scary because of bad press, but it, it's not scary. It's not different. It's a material science problem just like any other. Welcome to It's a Material World, the show that uncovers why material science will change the world. With your hosts, Tom Miller and Puneet Upadhyay. Hello, everyone. Our guest on today's episode is Dr. Liz Kautz, a material scientist at the Pacific Northwest National Laboratory, or PNNL, which is what we will call it throughout this episode. She specializes in researching the use of uranium, molybdenum, metallic fuels, and zirconium alloys, and is extremely knowledgeable about the even crazier world of material science and engineering that happens in and around nuclear reactors. We're excited to have you on the show today. Welcome, Liz. Thank you for the introduction. So my background on nuclear materials is very limited. So I wanted to start with the basics. You know, what exactly are nuclear materials and what applications are they well suited for? So nuclear materials is a super broad term, I would say, and also field. But when I think of nuclear materials, I typically think of any materials that are used in nuclear applications, which might range from things like fission reactors to power the grid and provide electricity to, you know, towns, businesses, et cetera. So commercial nuclear reactors and the, you know, kind of up and coming or under development fusion reactors. So I typically clearly think of reactors and the materials that are in these reactors and allow these reactors to work and you know, stay powering the grid, for example, for the fission reactors for long periods of time. So examples would be things like in the reactor core itself are fuels. We all know about uranium. Uranium is a fuel that is used in the core of nuclear reactors, but it's not just uranium. So uranium fuels are clad in well, they're called cladding, and that's zirconium alloys typically, although stainless steels are also used. And so these are materials that are in the core. But then there's also the whole secondary side. So there are a lot of non-uranium containing alloys, other like steels and nickel-based sorts of alloys on that side. So there's the whole range. There's a lot of materials that help make a plant run. So this is kind of what I think of when I think of nuclear materials. But I guess I should also mention that it's not just about nuclear power. Certainly there's like stockpile materials such as tritium and plutonium. And so these are also considered, you know, under at least my definition, nuclear materials, but with a different application. So you mentioned cladding materials, and I think that might be something we get into later on. But can you briefly just talk about what exactly are cladding materials? Sure. Yeah. So let's just take the example of a light water reactor. A very common fuel is uranium dioxide, UO2. These can be formed in pellets, pellet shapes. So think of really small cylinders stacked on top of each other. And then surrounding that is cladding. And those cladding materials, I mentioned zirconium earlier. Zirconium is a very common cladding material because it's what is known as neutron transparent. The zirconium is not going to suck up any neutrons so they can get right to the uranium. So this is kind of the whole cladding material concept where the cladding is actually the material that faces the water. If, you know, we're talking about light water reactors where water is the coolant and moderator here. So things like corrosion, materials degradation, these are all concepts that people care about very much when they think about cladding um, materials. So since there's so many things to consider, what makes you passionate about this field? 
Yeah. So this was, this kind of reminds me of when I was trying to figure out my undergraduate degree. I'll, <laughs> I'll get to your question. I promise. <laughs> <laughs> but right. So when I was trying to figure out what the heck am I going to major in as an undergrad, I was like, every engineering discipline seemed interesting to me. But the two things that stuck out to me were nuclear engineering and biomedical engineering. Anyway, let's just table the biomedical engineering thing. Maybe that was a weird you know, phase. But the reason nuclear engineering stood out to me was because it seemed like an area that there was a lot of active research. I felt like the applications were very worthwhile because... I think, you know, people are now considering nuclear more as like a clean energy source, although there is the issue of waste processing, but there are a lot of challenges, right? So there's the challenge of waste processing and then uh, maybe designing new reactors and a central component of this is the material aspect. So that's like stuck out to me as like this big challenge. And I said, okay, maybe I shouldn't like just focus on the nuclear engineering aspect. I should look more at the materials because that seemed to be like the future and where the research was happening. That's fascinating though. And so for our audience to give them some background, if they don't know a whole lot about nuclear, you know, what are the basic ingredients of a nuclear reaction? I think you've started to allude to a few of them, but you know, explicitly what are those things? And in terms of those ingredients, what's the difference between fusion and fission as a, uh, you know, in terms of what they require? So I'll just kind of start with fission. The ingredients you need are um, U-235. You need neutrons. And so when a neutron hits U-235, more neutrons are produced. You fission the U-235 and you create more neutrons and those neutrons then go to hit yeah, or like, you know, fission. Other U-235. And so the idea is that you need sufficient neutrons to sustain this reaction. So that's when your reactor is critical. So that's like criticality, or I believe is the correct term there. This is the gist, right, of what's kind of going on in the core. Someone described a reactor as um, a tea kettle. All you're doing is heating water. That's, I feel, the best description I've heard. <laughs> um, you're heating water and that's, yeah, that's what the core is, is there to do. So you heat the water and, you know, the secondary side has things like turbines and a bunch of piping so that you can generate electricity there. And the idea is that you kind of have two loops, primary, secondary, one has you know, radioactive components and or materials and the other is kind of separate from that. So you're heating water, making steam, electricity, et cetera, on these two sides. What I do know about fusion reactors is you need a self-sustaining plasma. And this is a super problem because we don't really know how to contain a burning plasma that's as hot as the sun. And, you know, what materials do we use to do that? How do we you know, keep such extreme environment operational on earth for so long? Like these are kind of open questions in the fusion realm. It's definitely one heck of a complicated problem to be able to solve fusion. But in terms of the fission side, you know, what are the current types of materials that are required to contain these nuclear reactions so they don't get to a state where they're not sustainable? Sure, sure. So I mentioned like fuel, cladding. If you ever see a, like a commercial power plant, there's a bunch of different buildings. It's like on this, it's like a campus, you know, <laughs> but 
kind of when you're, you're kind of alluding to some safety measures. So this fuel and cladding is contained in a pressure vessel. And then there's a whole containment kind of facility that surrounds that. So there are a lot of different safety measures in place that kind of prevent anything, you know, this reaction that's going on in the core. There's a lot of different things that are going on to control that. Some of those things include control rods. So I was talking about neutrons earlier. So neutrons will fission U-235. One neutron fissioning one U-235 produces more than one neutron. So you get more neutrons than you put in. And how do you control this? There's certain additives to the water. So the water chemistry can help moderate this reaction in addition to the control rods that are kind of opposite to zirconium. Hafnium sucks up neutrons. So while zirconium is transparent to neutrons, hafnium will suck them up. There are other control rod materials and ways, but if you think of like classic pressurized water reactor design, you can kind of insert hafnium control rods into the reactor to suck up some neutrons to control this reaction. So that's a key aspect of controlling this reaction. Cool. You mentioned zirconium alloys and you've worked with uranium molybdenum alloys. So what's the difference between these types of alloys that we use in nuclear reactors compared to uh, more traditional alloys like we use in bridges and cars like steel and aluminum? Well, I will say steels are all over the place in nuclear reactors, but if we're talking about core materials, uranium and zirconium are, are there and they're special. So uranium is special because of fissionable isotope U-235 and that's just the concept we were talking about earlier. It's fissionable, so neutron can fission U-235 and it produces more neutron. So it's like not found in nature. You know, if you mine uranium, you're not going to have like a big, a whole chunk of U-235. You need to go through a lot of different processes to get uranium that's in, you know, kind of a, a form for fuel, which is enriched in this specific isotope. And zirconium is very special because of I would say it's neutron transparency. You can look up things like neutron transparency for a bunch of different materials, and you'll see that zirconium is like exceptional in this aspect. You know, steels will suck up more neutrons. Hafnium, I already mentioned, that's like, you know, the other end of the spectrum that makes hafnium super special. And so there's these, I would say these are the two key aspects why people use uranium as fuel. Like that's pretty ubiquitous. And then zirconium also. And people have spent a lot of time since like the 1950s or so trying to take zirconium and alloy it in different ways to get the best possible fuel cladding material there is. And that is certainly an ongoing aspect of research in the, the nuclear industry. You know, how can we make a zirconium alloy with, you know, we can leverage the neutron transparency aspect, but also minimize the corrosion in these relatively high temperature, pressure, and maybe what you would call extreme environments. <laughs> Although someone who's working maybe in like, you know, jet engines, not very extreme or whatever, <laughs> but right. So I would say in the, the realm of zirconium alloys, uh, pressurized water reactor cores or some extreme environments. Wow. No, it just sounds like some really intense engineering challenges to to overcome to be able to do this sort of thing successfully. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. <laughs> <laughs> and so nuclear power sometimes gets a little bit of this bad rap. Notably, we've seen some devastating impacts of some nuclear meltdowns like Chernobyl and then Fukushima, which was about almost a decade ago at this point. And so, you know, how does your work at PNNL 
help enable a future in which nuclear energy is is safer and more ubiquitous than it is currently? Sure. I would like to start by saying that I think there are aspects of nuclear energy that aren't as widely accepted as I feel maybe they should be because there's a lot of like politics tied into that, which is unfortunate because when you think about the energy density, I'm sorry, not maybe not energy density, but the amount of energy that a single pressurized light water reactor plant could produce and its footprint. Now think about a wind farm. The wind, wind farms are like, you know, I, I live out in Eastern Washington. If I drive to Portland or Seattle, I'm in the middle of nowhere, but I see a lot of wind farms. So this is interesting because there aren't that many people around, but there are crap ton of windmills. Yeah. <laughs> so you have to take this energy that's generated at these remote wind farms, bring them to people. Whereas nuclear reactors are actually very, very safe. And they can, you know, there isn't this massive challenge of transporting, you know, electricity that's generated super far. So it's a smaller footprint you don't have this challenge of transporting energy very far away. And the amount of energy that can be produced just from a single fuel pellet or something is enormous in comparison to some of these other, you know, green energy technologies such as wind farms, solar, and efficiency is very high. And I'm saying all these things and I don't really have numbers, you know, off the top of my head to back them up. But I know, I know this is true right. <laughs> <laughs> and, I'm, and I'm sure those numbers are available on the internet. So I think the key to maybe how my work links to making nuclear energy more widely accepted. I mean, I'm not in policy, I'm not in politics, anything like that. But one of the aspects that is of major concern to the public are things like materials degradation in the plant. That's an issue in things like core, core melt. Although I'm not studying you know, conditions that would be experienced during a core melt, Understanding how materials behave in certain environments can enable a better predictive capability of how these materials are going to perform over the lifetime in a reactor. For example, how does the cladding material perform in an 18-month cycle, multiple cycles, etc.? So I think that's kind of how my work contributes, because if we understand our materials better, then... I think, you know, we can move on to improved plant designs and that can make for a very strong case for maybe more and better reactors in our future. I think another aspect that I'm not actively working on now, but is very important is this concept of waste management. A lot of people here are involved in that aspect of nuclear energy. I'm not per se, but again, that's a kind of a materials degradation problem. When we think about nuclear waste, and a geologic repository, or even just like shorter term storage, what you need to think about is how can I safely store these, you know, fuels or core materials that are radioactive in a safe way that provides a barrier to the outside environment or the public, right? So when the concept of a geologic repository was, you know, came up, I think design engineers or something, they were asked to design for something like 10,000 probably more, many, many thousands of years um, <laughs> for these materials to not break down, which is like an enormous, crazy challenge, right? So any research related to materials degradation, whether it, whether it's related to glass waste forms, metal canisters, ceramics, etc., this is all kind of still in the direction of how can we provide a safe 
method for long-term disposal of nuclear fuels. So let's dive into your work a little bit. What is it about uranium molybdenum metallic fuels that make them useful in the development of the future of nuclear reactors? Like, why are you working on on these types of alloys? Yeah, that's a good question. So when I was previously talking about fission reactors, I was thinking about commercial. Yeah. Power of the grid, that's the goal. But there's a whole other type of reactors that exist in this country and also worldwide research reactors. And the purpose of research reactors, I mean, there are several goals, but I would say the primary goals are first to test different materials in, you know, neutron and radiation environments, very typical of, you know, a real operating plant or an environment of interest that isn't easily reproducible, you know, in a small laboratory. <laughs> so it's, it's a big testing facility and also medical isotopes are produced there. So there are research reactors all over the country, um, and there's a special subclass of those called high-performance research reactors. And in the U.S., there's a reactor at Oak Ridge, INL, MIT, Missouri, SMT, and yeah, I think these are, I think there's five, but I'm missing one. These are like the specific research reactors that this Umali uranium molybdenum alloys are currently being developed for. So why these alloys is because previously or historically, these reactors are, you know, as the name suggests, high power, they were using highly enriched uranium fuels. So highly enriched is defined by the NRC as anything over 20 weight percent U-235 relative to all other uranium isotopes. So you can imagine that there's some risk associated with continuing to operate these reactors with that kind of uranium enrichment. The risk comes, when I say risk, I mean proliferation risk. <laughs> and I mean, you can imagine that the same highly enriched uranium that are that's used in these plants is the same sort of material that could be used to make a, a weapon or a bomb. Sure. So there's a big push to reduce the use of so we need to move to a different fuel source. So the main goal is to get a high enough U-235 density in a fuel to maintain the same power requirements that these reactors are already operating at. And uranium alloyed with 10 weight percent molybdenum is a leading candidate for that. So I guess if you say, okay, I want the highest uranium density possible, you would think, why not just have all uranium? So, <laughs> um, I mean, that's, this is what I thought, right? Um, <laughs> or it's a natural question, I guess. But the reason molybdenum is added is to stabilize the high temperature cubic phase at lower temperatures. So it's a minor alloying. Nah, it's not minor. It's 10 weight percent. It's an alloying addition to, to do that, stabilize the cubic phase, because if you don't have a molybdenum addition, then you have an orthorhombic crystal structure. And when you're talking about, you know, a fuel operating in a reactor, it, it swells. If it's swelling non-uniformly, that's a bad thing. There are other metals that can be added. I believe uranium, niobium, uranium, zirconium are also under consideration. But the U.S. currently is pretty devoted to the U10 moly alloy. I do have one follow-up to that, which is or just to clarify, so you're essentially saying that the molybdenum stabilizes that polymorphic transformation in the uranium, and that if you go through that transformation, you like run the risk of your fuel having some sort of degradation upon like its expansion or contraction through that polymorphic transformation. 
Actually, if you look at the Umali phase diagram, it's like below like 565C or so. You have alpha uranium plus a gamma prime. And above 565 or so, you have this cubic phase. But if you move all the way to uranium, no, you, you can't see that. So the, the cubic phase is only stable above this certain temperature in uranium. But if you alloy it with molybdenum, then you can retain it at lower temperatures. So that's the whole idea. I think that's also what you're saying. Yeah, it's a polymorphic transformation and you want to avoid that alpha uranium phase. It's so interesting that, I mean, we learned about polymorphism, you know, fairly early on in material science. And like, it's just interesting that that's like one of the motivations for it is something that is one of these fundamental material science principles. And, you know, the other major element of your work is studying these zirconium alloys for as one of these clotting materials. So, you know, what is their role to play in the development of this next generation of nuclear reactors? And, you know, what exactly is their their purpose moving forward? I mean, yeah, zirconium clotting still is, kind of, you know, the front runner in when you think of light water reactors. And right now, I think there's a big push in a kind of a newer era of zirconium alloys that, so I guess I'll, I'll kind of go back to 1950s or so, this series of zirconium alloys called zircaloys were invented. So zircaloys are a very dilute zirconium alloy. So dilute because you want to minimize any new absorption of the neutrons, but you also want like you know, improved mechanical properties. So it, it was kind of, you know, what you would think of as a typical trial and error alloy design approach. And so the series of zircaloys resulted. So zircaloy one, two, I don't hear very much about zircaloy three, but I'm sure it's there. <laughs> and so zircaloy four is very commonly used now. So the, I know the difference and major difference between two and four is that nickel was in zircaloy two and then zircaloy four, there's there's no nickel, a little more tin. So the reason that nickel was taken out was because it was correlated to an increased hydrogen absorption. So when people look at things like corrosion of zirconium alloys, they're very concerned with phenomena such as oxidation. So oxidation and hydrogen ingress and hydrogen pickup. Hydrogen pickup is important because when hydrogen and zirconium interact and kind of, again, you can take a look at the phase diagram, brittle hydride phases can precipitate if you have a high enough concentration of hydrogen. So that would be detrimental to things like the mechanical integrity of the fuel cladding, which is important because we don't want the fuel to directly contact the water. Now I'm just talking a lot about zirconium alloys, so I'll try to get back around to your question. So your question was uh, primarily about how does my research kind of relate to the development of zirconium alloys and how that might enable improved reactor design, et cetera. So right now, my research in zirconium alloys is actually on this on the side of this hydrogen ingress that I mentioned. So something that I'm working on now is looking at how can we better map and measure the hydrogen picked up in zirconium alloys. So a lot of work has been done in this area, and I'm just kind of looking at it from an analytical perspective right now. I'm trying to compare different methods. The, the reason I want to do that is because when you get, say, cladding that's been irradiated, maybe there are hydrides, you, know, you can analyze these materials a bunch of different ways. But I feel that I would prefer to take more of like a tiered approach, you know, where you start with larger scale chemical mapping and go down to nanoscale 
And so that's kind of the workflow I'm working towards now. In certain materials, certain zirconium alloys with different hydrogen concentrations, how can I map using multiple different techniques the hydrogen from millimeter down to nanoscale? And can I do that accurately? So not very application-based, but <laughs> I think the analysis portion is an important part. So from the material science perspective, just taking it a step back, looking at it from a broader idea, what are some of the current challenges that you face in enabling your research and just in the nuclear space as a whole to have a broader impact on society? I know you mentioned waste processing is one of them, but just wanted to address those challenges again. Yeah, I think uh, waste processing just happens to be like kind of, um, you know, a little bit more political, you know. I should lead by saying politics impact funding. Funding impacts research, whether it's nuclear materials or basic. So I think that is a challenge that we will always face. I say we, I mean, you know, researchers, whether you're at a university or um, at a national lab, especially when, you know, you start to think about things like waste processing, where a huge barrier there is, where is our geologic repository going to be. So Yucca Mountain was a thing, no longer a thing, like what's going on there. But who knows, maybe in the future, there will be a huge surge of funding related to, you know, the waste processing area for application in whatever geologic repository we can decide on. I should say, though, there's plenty of funding (laughs) in the waste processing arena and I just think a huge question mark there is where where will the waste go? There's a lot of politics involved in that sort of decision. If we're to talk about my specific research, yeah, so I'm not working on the waste processing aspect of you know nuclear materials research. But yeah, I think in general, there will always be sort of you know barriers or challenges in securing funding based on whatever political climate and whatever funding is available for different agencies. So this is, um, I work at a Department of Energy lab, but there's money coming from all over the place. This is not just DOE money coming here, although that's big. And the way that people get funding can either, you know, be enabled or um, made difficult based on, you know, program manager's decisions and whatever is going on in D.C. that I might not know about. So a large part of research is obtaining funding that aligns with DOE missions and then all the the several offices within DOE that fund, you know, so you have to kind of be aligned to missions and sometimes aligning yourself to these can be difficult. And so how can furthering our understanding of how materials behave in those sorts of environments, help us make, you know, our fission reactors better, faster, stronger? Something that is growing in popularity that isn't necessarily my area of expertise, but your question kind of reminds me of it. There's a lot of, there are a lot of startups around the U.S. that are looking at different reactor designs. And there are a couple of things going on here. So any time we can kind of further our understanding of material, how materials behave in different environments can help us predict how these materials might be performed when the reactor is operating. So then we can predict, okay, 
this is the lifetime of a reactor, something like this. But something that is also of interest is extending the lifetime, you know, or maybe time between refueling cycles, things like this. And something that I am not really an expert in, but I think that could be kind of a growing area is this small modular reactor design where maybe people, and I'm not kind of plugged into this community, but I would assume that, you know, refueling is not going to really be a thing there. When I say refueling, commercial reactors typically do this refueling cycle relatively frequently. But if you were to create these small reactors that could be placed maybe anywhere around the globe where you might need high energy density and that the kind of reactor or what I'm imagining, the kind of reactor you would like is to have a long lifetime where you're not constantly needing to refuel, right? So how can we go from using materials that maybe have a shorter lifetime to extending the lifetime safely? And that's where even just basic research on materials degradation might come in. But that's also critical to enabling new designs because when you start to look at new coolant materials, new fuels, how are these materials interacting with each other and the environment? That is crucial to something like qualifying a reactor to even be built in this country or any country. So is that where you see like the future of nuclear reactors going? Like looking at it 10 years down the line is just that extended lifetime. Is that kind of that main thing that you envision? Well, I think that's a big push for a lot of designs and stuff because I mean, refueling is expensive and not easy. And I mean, imagine a reactor where you build it once and you don't have to constantly maintain it like that's a huge benefit, I think, you know, in terms of the output for the investment. There are also um, reactors that maybe can generate their own fuel. So again, that's kind of going to require less refueling. This is an interesting concept. Breeder reactor would be the term I'm thinking of. That's an interesting concept, again, because you can build a reactor that is, you know, meant to provide power for 40 years. That's a long time. So to me, that's a huge goal for our future. But truthfully, I'm not personally involved in any of those uh, specific research reactor designs or areas. I just kind of have learned about it here and there from reading or colleagues, etc. So I think that's a big future thing. But I also, yeah, we've talked about this a lot, but the waste processing, I think, is going to be a huge Thing we need to overcome as a country before we can really adopt nuclear with, you know, more open arms, so to speak. <laughs> Bottom line for us, we've covered a lot today about, you know, this concept of nuclear materials and how they play into enabling this future of nuclear energy, probably speaking. And so for our listeners listening to this, what are a few key points you'd like for them to take away about the impact of materials research in this space? Yeah, that's a great question. And you've probably noticed I'm not the best at being concise, but I will try. (laughs) Yeah, so I think, well, okay, first and foremost, this is very broad and applies to a lot of spaces, but I think fundamental research related to how materials behave in different environments is critical to not only, you know, the future of nuclear energy and any nuclear materials application, but also just our future as a society, right? This kind of spans from nuclear energy to automotive, transportation, whatever. So I think 
research is really kind of the backbone there. And nuclear energy maybe seems a little bit scary because of, I don't know, I guess just kind of some bad press. But it, it's not scary. It's not different. I think, you know, we were just talking about simple phase diagrams. It's a material science problem, just like any other alloy design, you know, when we were talking about fuels. And I think that with anything, knowledge helps you kind of peel away that fear. Yeah, that fear. And so I would encourage anyone that's interested or even just like a non-believer <laughs> or doesn't think it's like the best uh, energy source of our future, just to read and learn more about it. I'm constantly learning even, and I work in this space. So I think research and learning are going to be important parts of pushing nuclear energy into our future. Thank you. I, I had very limited knowledge of, of this field. So I really did appreciate this introduction to nuclear energy and nuclear materials. And even you kind of playing your part in removing that that stigma that there might be around around this field. And if our listeners want to reach out to you, maybe potentially connect with you, what's the best way to do that? Is that via LinkedIn? Yeah, I'm on LinkedIn. We can probably just put a link there and maybe show notes. And thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the It's a Material World podcast. If you enjoyed the show, consider subscribing on your favorite podcast app so you never miss another episode. If you'd like to meet other passionate material scientists and engineers and discuss all things MSE, join our Discord community using the link in the show notes below. If you want to support us and the growth of this podcast, please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts and share this show with your friends and family. If you have any feedback, we would love to hear it. We want to grow the show with our community's input, so you can message us via email or any of our social media platforms. The links will be provided in the show notes below. We'll see you soon, and in the meantime, go change the world.